0: Hello and welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today we are super lucky to be chatting with Corey Paul Nicholson from PG Shapeware. Now, the first thing you'll notice about Corey is that he's a 20-year-old phenom who's built a seven-figure e-commerce brand in just the past couple of years, pivoting from aggressive drop shipping in the heyday of e-commerce in the, in the 2017 region to starting his brand in 2020 to scaling it through iOS 14 and beyond. Uh, we talk a lot about influencer marketing, uh, how to organize it at scale, we talk about financing. We talk about some really cool uh, tactics around email marketing and a few other hot takes. Uh, Corey is full of hot takes and we finish it talking a little bit about Web3. I hope you enjoy this one. On with the show.
1: text marketing. It was a Friday and we didn't have anything to send out. Designs were still kind of in the process. I just fired my agency. And so I'm running a campaign typing this super simple, maybe like six or seven lines of copy. One line said like, hey, You look great today. How are you? My boss wants me to sell more shapewear. So here I am. Totally non-biased. If you wanted to buy it, try it. Something like that. And I got maybe like six, seven, eight hundred dollars in revenue just in one night on a Friday. And I was like, okay, crap. Like Maybe we should do more of these. And it starts with the subject line. You can't have like a corporate basic subject line and then have like this low key plain text email. Obviously, it all starts with the subject line. Plain text emails, You even just doing like one a month if you're really against them and you love your cute designs that you make, cool. But I would definitely say plain text.
0: Hey retailers, ever feel like your shopper experience feels just like everyone else's? Here's an idea. Put your shopper first with the only personalization platform that is purpose-built for retailers. Bluecore combines retail data and predictive intelligence to match online shoppers with the products they will buy next across channels like email, site, paid media, social, and SMS. Automate and scale your personalized content offers and recommendations for each shopper in a one-on-one, individualized experience. Visit BlueCore.com to see why brands like Noble, Express, and Bliss have gone shopper first to drive repeat purchases and increase customer lifetime value. Corey, welcome to the D2C podcast. Someone told me you're 20 years old. Can you start by telling me all about your e-commerce journey?
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, Just to take you back, uh, a few years ago when I was in high school, I I got my first laptop towards the ending of... 11th grade in high school and started coming across all these YouTube videos on my feed of drop shipping, and saw all these crazy stories about people making money selling these bracelets from Alibaba or whatever on Shopify. I had no idea what any of this stuff was. I was just some high school student working at McDonald's at the time. And I was like, all right, whatever, kind of brushed it off. A few months later went by. I ended up you know, opening my first store, learning all the basics. As time went on, obviously I got better and better and I was just drop shipping all these things from China. As time went on, I was like, you know what? I've been doing this for like two years. During that time, I basically fell in love with it. I became obsessed. Like This was pretty much all I did. I didn't do any more homework in high school. I pretty much went full-time e-commerce. That led to me dropping out of college after my first week. I said, I'm doing this like full, full-time. I bet on myself um, and did not look back. And I said, you know what? I've been doing this dropshipping thing for a while, but why don't I start you know, looking more long-term with this and building a brand? And so um, my partner and I, Anthony, got together because he lives down the street from me, he still does. And um, we said, hey, you know what, let's let's actually like launch something here, and for the first three, four months, go slow, um, and just see where it actually goes long-term, instead of having to test new stuff every month, and new stores, new products, new everything, and um, let's see how far we can go. And so with that came the birth of Peachy, and I've done some writing on my Twitter and everything about the success it's had, and obviously a lot of the failures that came with that.
0: And Give us the high level on the success you've had, because I know you've wrote, written about it publicly. Tell us about the success you've had with Peachy in the last couple of years.
1: Totally, yeah. So we launched it in October 2020. We've passed this seven-figure revenue mark uh, just recently. And a lot of that came from influencer marketing at the beginning. Like we knew for some reason in our brains, it was instilled that the difference that we were going to kind of have with dropshipping versus um, this whole brand approach was that we wanted to work more with creators, influencers, and become like an affiliate-ish brand. Like we wanted this to become more of you know a bunch of creators representing us versus just our Facebook page, which also has its role, of course, but more than just that. And so, since day one, we were sending products to creators in hopes that they'd post something. Sometimes we'd be super specific and pay creators and ask them to post stuff, and we'd see decentish results now and then. Other times we'd be super authentic, transparent, and kind of just say, "Hey, um, you know, post whatever you feel like is best," and we saw even better ROIs there. But um, definitely, yeah, pass them figures. Um, last year was definitely crazy, and twenty twenty two we're trying to do the same thing, but just kind of lock in more consistent systems and really build that strong network of creators. I think that's definitely one
0: big part, and just launch more products, more SKUs, which is obviously annoying in apparel. But it... I wanna I wanna dive into that, but first I wanna go back because I remember I was in Berlin. Uh, exhibiting at a conference, I think in 2016, and Thomas, the founder of Oberlo, came up to me and he was like, "Hey, did you know that you don't even have to hold inventory? You know, you can just like use our our tool here and flip these products online." I wanted to go back to those early days for you because I remember what those days were like. Like, what was your first big win that made you go, "I got to drop out of school"? And then what did your parents think?
1: Totally, yeah. Um, and it's crazy how you were around back then too. It was really insane. Um, this was like 2017, 2018 ish with Facebook ads. So folks were just taking $10, like bracelets that cost maybe 20 cents to buy off AliExpress, selling it for $10. And that was the definition of printing money back then. And you know, there's bigger brands like native that kind of launched back then too. And you know, they were able to capitalize big time on Facebook back then, right? The CPAs were like incredibly low. You're paying like a couple bucks for a purchase sometimes. So that's definitely crazy. For me specifically, I was selling these like silicone kind of toe separators. So they go around your feet and around your toes, and that's what I was selling. the The site was called Flexi Toes. I ended up selling that site actually, but um, that that was the first thing I had where I was consistently doing around like 30k a month in revenue, um, just drop shipping this thing, and I kind of realized the potential of e-commerce and how consistent it was, and I fell in love with like the ka-chings from the Shopify app, and that's not like, okay. This could probably be a big thing, um, and that was a few months before dropping out. Um, but when I did drop out, yeah, my parents kind of knew that. I was ambitious, and they saw how hard I worked. I wasn't really, you know, looking to drop out to have time for myself or work on myself or whatever. Like I knew I had an objective, of what I wanted to do and accomplish, and so they put trust in me and said, "Okay, you have one year, um, and that's all I needed to prove myself just a little bit." I still think there's a long way to go, but
0: yeah, well, you're, you 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 do have a long way to go. But just but it's exciting that you have made this much progress this early. Are your parents entrepreneurial? Um,
1: no, not at all. My dad kind of works in manufacturing, and my mom is more of a stay-at-home mom since she had us.
0: I'm a twin, so she raised us. You haven't drafted in the twin yet to the biz?
1: No, not yet.
0: Not yet. Nice. Um, I wanted to ask, so you've obviously, like, back in the day with the Facebook Facebook algorithm, the way it was, uh, scaling, you know, was a bit more of a push-button type type scenario. Um, I wanted to, like, what are some of the things that you've taken from those days now that you've built a brand that you think has given you an edge against maybe some of your competitors who didn't come from such scrappy beginnings?
1: Totally. Yeah.
0: Some stuff here is kind of cliche.
1: I think some stuff is kind of actually more um, technical and like you can apply it, but I think no matter what, it always just starts with creative. So even back then, I guess we had a bit more levers on who you could target and like lookalikes were stronger and they still work now. And I think back then ad account structures were a a lot more, I guess, nuanced and like you were actually like optimizing what interests saw what ad and lookalikes and stuff. Whereas nowadays, most brands, especially the bigger ones, like the bigger you are, like the easier your ad account pressure gets, I feel like, where you're just, all your targeting is in the creative um, and not so much in the ad set. So I guess to answer your question, yeah, um, the biggest thing I've realized is that I can't judge ads myself. I used to make ads a lot and judge them and say, oh, this one's going to do bad, do better. But in reality, I don't really have the mind of a consumer, especially one like who's buying products from Peachy. And so for me to make assumptions like that is probably uh, super unhealthy for the business, right? So now I'm just keep super open-minded and just realize that, yeah, like sometimes the least good looking piece of content or the least like the, the one that you have like the least hopes for will do the best because that's how consumers work sometimes um which is obviously paradoxical but that's kind of what I've learned I think
0: yeah I think I, we can definitely agree on the pilot house side it's something we see all the time and then alternately what like so going from the world of drop shipping where you're again this push button scaling to building an actual brand what's been the biggest challenge for you and your partner in actually building out this brand there's been challenges. There's, I can't name one. There's been challenges. I, I think probably to start
1: um, is just inventory. Considering the fact that it is an apparel thing, we're juggling 100 plus SKUs um, all the time. I think that that's probably the first one, keeping up with just sales and making sure that not one SKU is sold out for too long. Then I'm also not overbuying. And then I'll of course, to, like, to partner with that is cash flow. Uh, and so we started this um, for a while, we were totally bootstrapped and just using our, our own money. Um, after a while, it, we were growing so fast that so we had to kind of exercise some of the options available to us, and so we looked into partners like Shopify Capital and stuff like that. and also got like some working loans, but um, I think those were kind of the main too was just inventory and cash flow. And then aside from that, um, I think we struggled a lot with influencers last year because almost 99% of our stuff we were just shipping product, paying creators, and hoping for a good result. And when it did hit, it was beyond profitable. It was way better than Facebook. Like it, was, it was amazing. But when they don't hit, that's just a super bloody P&L. And if too much of those happen, it doesn't look too good. So that was also a struggle. But before that, uh, definitely um,
0: inventory, cash flow. It's one that every brand struggles with for sure, like cash flow for sure. Yeah, let's talk about cash a little bit. It's not something we talk about on the podcast a ton. So what options did you said you exercise Shopify Capital, which which I'm just becoming kind of more aware of than sort of independent things. Like what, what was your sort of journey there on acquiring financing? Um. Well, we didn't have all the options in the world. There weren't, like,
1: people knocking on our doors. There were two year twenty-year-old. My partner's also just a year old in the MISO at the time. Like, we were about, like, twenty twenty-one. So And we were generally a young business, so banks aren't too excited. There's no venture capitalists chasing us. So it was more there's just, like... Um, yeah, Shopify Capital was available and there are like a few like lending providers that gave us a loan at a high interest rate. But Shopify Capital is definitely the friendliest, and I feel like as long like for listeners out there, as long as you don't go over the 10% remittance rate, I think you're good. Of course, no business is the same, but we took the 10% one, and if we did anything over that, it would have gotten really hard. Cause even 10% is like cutting it, because they offer different percentages of sales um, as you pay back the, loan. sorry,
0: back up. Just, I'm a total layman here. 10% uh, remittance. Yeah. So like they'll give you X amount and then, um, they'll take 10% of your sales every single
1: day until that amount paid back. Plus a bit of like interest on top.
0: Interesting. It sounds like a Kevin O'Leary loan on the shark tank. Yes. Sounds like the kind of thing he loves. Okay, cool. And so that was your first option. Have you explored any others? Um, that was like one of our first options and one that we took twice now
1: we've worked with them twice and it's pretty good. Um, but yeah, we've seen Clearco, we've seen Wayflyer. We've, we went through we had through everything before, like just deciding. Um, but they, they kind of all do the same stuff. There's even like PayPal Capital, Amazon, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of credit and then there's Shopify Capital, which helped us for sure last year towards the end.
0: And then how have you deployed it to be most effective? Is it on inventory? Is it on growth? How are you actually deploying the capital to see the biggest uh, impact? It's definitely those
1: two pillars for sure. Nothing crazy. Um, uh, most of it was probably put towards, I, I want to say like, 50, 60% inventory, 40% growth, somewhere around there, uh, for sure, we, we want to be in stock for everything if we're going to be pushing big marketing campaigns with influencers and stuff. And so um,
0: it definitely helps speed things up. And so you mentioned inventory was the other biggest half of the sort of learning curve on evolving from dropshipping. Did it get solved with capital? Or are there any other like key learnings you'd have to share about like how you've gotten better with inventory? It got
1: solved, but everything is just temporary, right? Because as you get more, more gets sold. And so you have to keep reordering, reordering, unless you're buying a crap ton up front, which we don't. Like, the most we'll ever have on hand for any certain SKUs, maybe 90 days, which you can argue is long or short, but for us, that seems pretty short. So I'm um, trying to piece it together. But no, I think, yeah, I think that's definitely just that, that constant game of reordering and keeping it up is probably one bottleneck that a lot of apparel brands face which is why it's not always the best business, but it has it has taught me a lot for future companies that run the future. Like I've now learned how to juggle all these SKUs in a female niche, et cetera. So if I were to pivot and do like a low SKU, higher AOV, maybe in male niche kind of um, audience, there could be more upside there.
0: You could definitely do a lot more of your UGC internally between you and your partner, I imagine.
1: Yeah, that's actually a good point you make too. It's also hasn't been a struggle but it's definitely a lot harder to scale people than anything else and so to get like 50 plus people just making content it's hard and you don't want to be chasing them down asking for content so now we kind of have this like laid-back approach where like we ship stuff um if they like it then we truly believe that they'll make stuff and kind of just leave it at that instead of having to chase someone down and say hey your payment a this that like kind of leave it open-ended
0: we, we talk about iOS 14.5 on the podcast all the time. And I, get, I bet I know the answer to, to the question, like how you overcome, the, you know, what, what its impact was and then how you overcome the, the impact on the business. I bet it has to do with creative, as you've already touched on.
1: Yeah, creative and account structure for sure. Nothing I've really said is going to be rocket science or groundbreaking in this area. But um, yeah, day by day, we're still kind of working on this and trying to improve it as best as we can. But, but as of lately, uh, 2022 has been off to a profitable year. Um, just overall in the store Facebook's playing its role there for sure and the way we're kind of just looking at things is just having one simple like top of funnel campaign with minimal ads that's inside there and then we'll have um, a, a ton of ads so maybe like up to like 10 ads in an ad set and we're just testing new creatives I think I told you before we recorded we're trying to pump out 15 to 20 a week um, sometimes we get there sometimes we don't and it's a, it's a mixture of photos carousels gifs videos but most of it is videos so super simple Top of Funnel structure there, and then one campaign just for retargeting. Where we'll have like one ad set, maybe two, and just kind of put as much as audience we want in there. So we have video views, page viewers, add to carts, um, and sometimes we'll even hit them with the same creative they saw on Top of Funnel, um, in that middle funnel slash bottom funnel campaign, just to increase the frequency. And we see that kind of works well for us, but then again, just depends on how much education, I guess,
0: your customer needs on their product. For us, it's not too hard to show someone what it does. I'm hearing more and more about account simplification. Cody Plofker was just on the other day talking about how everything's just in that one main campaign for them. I know that you're, I think the reason that we discovered you is just so you're pretty active out there on D2C Twitter. Has this community been a really valuable resource for you? It has, yeah. Uh,
1: Sometimes it upsets me that it's not bigger. I feel like there's like a lot of smart, smart folks out there that put out great stuff and are running great companies that don't get, like I guess, the attention and eyeballs that, I don't know if they want it, but they should, I guess, deserve um, I think software gets a lot of the attention, but like this DTC community, yeah, it's a little bit smaller, but super engaged. And the people that do share, including Cody, a yeah, great guy, definitely has been gone a long way. Um, and you know, you can like go on Twitter and within five minutes have like three things to execute on and find yourself a content creator on there. Like it's it, the, the opportunities keep unfolding. E-commerce fuel is also a great a great group I'm in, run by Andrew.
0: Very cool. If you've
1: heard of e-commerce fuel, yeah.
0: Um, okay, well, back to UGC here. You mentioned a big lever has been your ability to churn out like lots of creative across the whole the whole spectrum of things. What has allowed you, like I imagine wrangling creators, we talked about you not being able to make as much shapewear, you know, peachy shapewear creative yourself. So what's been the biggest win in like attracting influencers and sort of having them more or less on retainer and able to churn out the kind of content that you need when you need it? Uh, I think our, one of our end goals, like we try to almost never get creators
1: actually on a retainer. Uh, most of the time, we're just trying to get them to become an affiliate. So, like any sales they actually make us with their code or link, they're getting paid for. But aside from that, almost rarely, especially this year, are we doing like a paid kind of um, retainer deal. But in the past, in 2021, we were doing a lot of that. And that's what ultimately led to us getting like 40, 50 pieces plus of content was just reaching out to creators, hearing their rates, negotiating rates, shipping product, they'd post. However it did, it did. Usually if it was good, we'd obviously do more and more and turn them into a long-term affiliate like we are now. Um, but, but that was ultimately our goal. I, I don't recommend it for every brand. If I can go back, I probably would change how much we invested there and just how it worked. I think I tweeted recently how like we spent easily over 50K on influencers last year. So it's a pricey way to get content and there is like a potential ROI there, but it just really depends on the brand and how you view an ROI for your business. Like for us, we want to be
0: profitable in that first purchase. Some brands don't mind as much. There's like a fine line, right? And it's one of those things that hopefully you can refine over time right? Like you're you're going out to the market with all of these, you know, creative briefs and working with all these different creators. You're gonna like, I'm curious about your hit rate in something like that. Like, is it like 10% eventually become really valuable ad assets? Is it like, what would you describe your hit rate at with with UGC?
1: I would say it's definitely under 20%, maybe over 10%. And uh, that was the of that we'd fall in. But then it'd also be a bunch of people that land in the middle where like, you know, like in the yellow zone where they would Get a little bit of revenue, and they make it a little bit of content that was pretty good and could be used in ads and stuff. They had brought a good personality, and I think that's like one of the main things we're looking for now. As I'm training an employee right now to help us source creators, like just looking at that personality. And I also tweeted about this the other day, but just you know, instead of only looking at followers, review count, or measuring the success by like that one revenue. Um, Driver, that that one post that went live, it's more about like the community that that creator is building. Like, are they kind of business minded? You know, are people engaging with their stuff constantly? Are they like doing a lot of videos where they're replying to comments and making content? That kind of stuff really excites me. Um, where like pretty much does the creator have true fans? And you can kind of tell pretty quickly if like the same people are always raving and asking about specific things in that person's life.
0: You, so you did all this testing. I love that you like, this is a, an approach at Pilot House that we take as well. I think it's like the, the spaghetti on the wall approach to see what sticks kind of deal. And I'm curious in all the testing that you did, what was what were some of the surprising things that uh, that you found that worked?
1: Yeah, totally. I can tell a good story about this one. Um, there was this one animation we got done uh, for one of our best-selling products, that this like backless body bra, where it was just a rotating kind of three D animation of the product on like a pink background. It was very simple, very basic. I think we got it done on Fiverr for like under a hundred bucks. Uh, but with that, we said, okay, let's, you know what, we, we want to use that for TikTok, but for a second, we threw it into our Facebook ads, kind of like Adobe campaign and put in the in the beginning and wrote some quick copy. And I, I, it went along the lines of, I found the Superman of bras. Uh, and that was just one of like the 13 creatives we tested that week. And it happened to really hit well. I click through rate, um, super high row as we saw it was doing well. And we were able to scale that thing for sure, uh, at least for a couple of months. And it went viral on TikTok as well and got like two, three million ish views. So we knew that something there really worked. And now we're trying to obviously play around and do more of that. But that was one that really caught me off guard. I think my partner was more bullish on that topic. I was more like, oh, let's just keep doing what we were doing here. But he kind of encouraged us to explore and do more. And obviously it paid off. And just, yeah, it took me by surprise. Like I said earlier in the pod, like the least kind of things you might have hopes for would probably do well. Same with like the TikTok organic stuff.
0: Did you do Wonder Woman? Did Did you test the Wonder Woman of bras as well? I'm writing this down, but no, we didn't do Wonder Woman yet. We did Superman. I, we did we did Superwoman. It didn't work as Superwoman. well. Superwoman. Oh, I, Wonder Woman's more iconic than Superwoman. You get, I, I don't think Aquaman's gonna work. You might get some goth ladies in there with Batman or Batwoman, but. Uh, always worth a test. Hopefully you can give that one a try. Uh, and, and you also mentioned TikTok Organic, which is something we talk about with everyone. There's this is, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this before. It's probably the biggest opportunity out there, you know, to, to just get a million impressions in a day if, if you hit something right. What what are you doing on TikTok Organic? Totally. Yeah. I think to, to, just to add to what you said, it's the biggest opportunity, but I think
1: it's overhyped just a little bit. Hot take, but I think some brands are kind of taking it too seriously and too big. But for the most part, it is generally a really good strategy. We started on to talk back in October 2020. This was back in the day and our, um, at, at, like I told you before we started recording as well, like there's this one time where early days at Peachy, my partner's whipping up something for the homepage, I think on our website for Shopify. And we had one of our products that we were just like demoing from our suppliers on the ground. I filmed a quick eight second video saying my wedding is X days away. I'm freaking out, etc. This shaper saved my life. Um, very simple, like, you know, like really dumb copy and it must've got like five, six million views. We, all of a sudden we were getting hundreds of customers within a week span. We were kind of just like freaking out. And now you're still hearing more and more of those stories, but it's probably less occurring, not less occurring, but like less percentage of brands actually pulling it off. But back then, yeah, it was incredibly, yeah, just easier to, you know, get that much views and really hook people. But now, like I said, it's getting really nuanced and there's a lot of brands, a lot of creators pretty much competing for the same people. But um, it's still probably yeah, the most under-leveraged, under but still a little bit overhyped, in my
0: opinion. We all know how tough the past 12 months have been with supply chain and marketing costs rapidly rising. Ecom World is your secret weapon to help your brand get back on track and make this year your best year ever. Ecom World is hosting an online event that will arm you with the strategies you need to grow your D2C brand profitably. Meet experts like Kellen Fitzgerald, head of Ecom at Glow Recipe, and Davey Fogarty, CEO of The UDI, as well as 80 other e-com experts who are paving the way in DTC. Get their step-by-step strategies to optimize the growth of your ecom brand right now. DTC listeners receive 30% off the ticket price, so head over to ecomworldconference.com slash DTC to get your ticket now. That's ecomworldconference.com slash DTC. I wanted to ask, okay, yeah. so what are your goals? You know, you, you spun up this brand. You, you know, you talked, to me, you've already exited uh, e-commerce brand already, which is exciting. What are your goals with uh, with Peachy Shapewear in terms of exiting?
1: That exit for the first one was really small, like just under five figures. Like it was super tiny. So like, I'm not even counting it. But I mean, at the same time, uh, yeah, for this business, so we do have plans to sell it in the future, we're, we're still trying to f- we're refining every day as to when that's going to be. Um, we're not really in a rush to do anything right now, but obviously, if things come along, we're obviously like actively, our ears are always open, but um, yeah, I think the goal would be, would be to eventually um, sell or continue running this company, and then continue to kind of um, launch more things. Like I was saying earlier, I think if I could take everything I learned right now and kind of summarize it, it's that for most folks, if especially if they're starting their first business, like try to, not avoid, but try to limit how much SKUs you're working with in the beginning, like if you're if you're juggling hundred plus skews, like you're just gonna run into capital issues and if you tackle those capital issues with the wrong ways, it's just like a double whammy. And it might not happen like overnight, but like six months down the road you'll be like, Oh crap, maybe we shouldn't have done that. So that's kind of one thing we learned. Um is the high skews. And so if I can just take all that, and you know, now go to like a low-skew, higher AOV, maybe male niche, kind of where you're, like you're understanding your customer more, and like you have like that founder product fit, um, that'd be great. And so for me, that means maybe running some kind of fitness brand. I'm super passionate about fitness. At the same time, I'm also um, interested and in, invested into like Web three and software, and there could be something there. Maybe the intertwining of both. But I do think that e-commerce is still like one of these the, those like golden business models for most folks.
0: Yeah, I want to dive into some of your predictions about the future of the biz, but first I wanted to get out. What what's one thing you think people should test in their email marketing?
1: Yeah, uh, for that again is one of those unexpected results we had, um, but it's plain text marketing, and um, I'm not going to exactly read one of the templates we had, but it went. It was a Friday, and we didn't have anything to send out. Designs were still kind of in the process. I just fired my agency because we were we worked with one all last year. Earlier this year, we let go of some folks, including them. And we've kind of been fine with performance for email. And so I'm running a campaign right here on my computer. And I'm just typing this super simple, maybe like one paragraph long, like maybe like six or seven lines of copy really quickly. Like one line something like, like, hey, you look great today. How are you? My boss wants me to sell more shapewear. So here I am, totally non-biased. If you wanted to buy it, try it, done. Like it was a very quick, something like that. And I got maybe like six, seven, $800 in revenue just in one night uh, on a Friday. And I was like, okay, crap, like maybe we should do more of these. And I looked into it more and it does sound like, you know, um, Email service providers like Klaviyo do like when you have like more, I guess, like clickable and like text in your campaigns versus like a whole like PNG design just dragged in, which is what we usually do. Um, so I'm not sure if it's that or just maybe I'm a good copywriter or maybe both. But those plain text emails, you even just do like one a month if you're really against them and you love your cute designs that you make. Cool. But I would definitely say plain text. And then if it works, try it SMS as well.
0: And I think it's it's funny, you mentioned just two things in your copywriting, you know, uh, previously you were talking about the angle of Superman of bras, the, the the worry that you'd have about your wedding. These are all just really great direct response things. And I think the thing to call out in your email strategy here is like this idea of like my boss, my boss doesn't know that this is happening. It's funny. I remember when <laughs> the hustle did that for for something, they they were like, oh, this this went out on error. Maybe it was an error, but then they spun it into a big promotion. Yeah. It really worked. But that idea of just a little bit like, you know, this isn't supposed to happen, but here you go. Is just, I think that's really powerful. And it
1: starts with the subject line. So you can't have, like, a corporate, like, basic subject line and then have, like, this low-key, type, like, plain text email. Obviously, as simple as that sounds, we made the mistake. It all starts with the subject line. Even, like, small little gigs, like, putting, like, R-E and, like, colon, like, read. Like, my boss said this. Or um, now and then, like, when you get a calendar invite, usually it says invitation and colon. So we've had that, too, where it's, like, invitation and colon. Like, come try this. And then we'll have them, like, click. I'm not sure how that works legal-wise and stuff, definitely... I not like losing that too much, but I think it all starts with the subject line for sure.
0: But what what's your sort of trend with TikTok and Facebook ads right now? Are you are you spending on TikTok ads as well as organic? And then what does your spend mix look like compared with TikTok compared to Facebook right now? I think right now we're still like seventy five
1: percent Facebook, twenty five percent TikTok slash Google. I guess we can throw it in there, but like we are doing some work with like the Spark ads and trying to run stuff through creators pages and stuff. I think it might continue to increase and we kind of want to even out a bit more, maybe like 60 to 40, but I still, like I'm super bullish on Facebook and I think that like their ad platform isn't like as bad as some people also may say. I think if you figure out creative and kind of pump things out, you can still see like good results and like scalable results on there. Maybe not as good as before, like before August and stuff, but um, mm-hmm. and um I think TikTok is also, yeah, one of those things where attribution is so hard and you're not, like you said earlier, just like spaghetti on the wall. You're not going to see every conversion it brings in no matter what, attribution software you're using or post-purchase survey, like it just won't go back and Facebook will probably get it as like view through conversions. But yeah, spark ads and TikTok ads are definitely getting more of the mix and they are probably profitable, but it's hard to just like verify it sometimes.
0: And then what are you doing on the tracking side of things? You'd mentioned, you'd sort of tried a bunch of different uh, third party software for tracking.
1: Yeah. What we doing right
0: now, nothing.
1: We're just keeping it like we're just, we're just doing what it's based off intuition. We know like the rough numbers um, but we did. We had Hyros, We did Triple Whale. Um, we were just close to North Beam and Elevar. We kind of looked at all of them. These are the four big names, I feel like. There's a few more, like, Wicked Reports and stuff. We did We did all that. And it's not to say they don't work or they do work or anything. Like No bias there. But we just felt it was best to probably just, like, cut the expense and kind of just work what we have. It also depends on the size of your brand. And if you're already doing like X dollars per day organically and it's hard to backtrack, it's different. But for us, we're fortunate enough, I guess, to launch ads and be able to see the revenue move. And so just about making one change at a time and then measuring results like that.
0: Okay, on to the future here. When uh, When I was your age... And I don't want to, I'm going to age myself really badly here. The internet was just coming out and it was like, you know, it was still, I was on like IRC chats trying to log onto the internet and we're like, what will the internet be? Netscape. Wow. You were in in the crib when Netscape was around. And so I'm curious, like, because right now I feel like we're at that stage in like that 1998, 96 era for Web3. And I'm curious, you know, how are you, uh, like, how are you thinking about the evolution of specifically like this e-commerce space as it relates to like Web3?
1: Totally. Yeah. Um, I think if we're talking about Web3, I guess like, the first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is NFTs, and I think one idea I've had, and I've even talked to folks like back and forth about it just loosely, I think even Nick Sharma wrote an email about how like most loyalty programs suck, like smile rewards and stuff, like, they, don't, like, they, they don't really do much for your store and you're just paying money. And it's like, <clears throat> how can we kind of intertwine NFTs with that whole loyalty rewards so, to really incentivize people to come back, wrap your brand, you know, earn coin that you can use in the store and stuff like that. That was kind of, I guess, like one idea I had. So I don't have like too much specifics here, but um, I do know as time goes on, rather if it's on Ethereum or Solana or whatever, um, NFTs with e-commerce are going to become more of a bigger play. And we're starting to see it now with like, Adidas and like the board apes, and it will make its way down to like smaller DTC brands. But...
0: I'm really interested for the way that things like Kickstarter merge, where it's like okay, and so you, you 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 basically if you see a brand that you love and you want to buy a bunch of it or you want like that opportunity to invest in these brands and sort of grow with them as they grow. So then you're not you're a customer, you become an advocate, you become a an, an influencer, and then you have potentially some ownership in its growth as well, which is I think a really neat opportunity.
1: I agree. Actually, that's a great point, and it's and it's not as big of a shift as I think some people might think, because with Kickstarter, like you're kind of Putting down some fiat money, um, maybe you get like a T-shirt in advance for being an early backer. You gonna get you read like the white paper, like quote unquote, and like see the video of the product before it's built and stuff. Um, you invest whatever, and then you know if it works and they raise enough, it's great and it kind of works out. If not, you're kind of out of luck. Um, I think that this is a tipping point as to like consumers ask themselves why would I use Ethereum or Solana or whatever versus fiat, and, and once they figure out why. Cause there's a lot of reasons why and I'm not Gary Vee and he can explain it to you, but, um, there's a lot of reasons why. And once most people figure that out and um, it, it, flitch, it switches and I think it's just going to really like start to waterfall and it's starting to happen slowly. Right. It's just like the on chain kind of upside, right? Like where you, instead of just getting that t-shirt, you're actually getting that coin, that coin can accumulate in value or you can use it to buy more stuff, rep the brand, like, and everyone likes to rep like what they were early to, especially digitally. Like that's kind of like how everything is, um, so that's kind of like where my head's at.
0: And you own that and you can sell it. You can pass it on. You could take fractional ownership of, of how it grows after the fact. And there, there's so many interesting opportunities. I love that you brought up fiat. And this is the first time anyone said fiat on the podcast. And uh, I feel like we're seeing some uh, some of the issues with fiat currency Oh, you know, right now with these insane sort of inflation numbers. Do you have any other sort of, like, broader um, just, uh, predictions about crypto? Are you into crypto as a, as a really, as a young person? Like, do you really feel like it's the future?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people that are younger like me kind of are more bullish than, like, the older folks. Like, I was speaking with some investment bankers, like, last week. Most of them don't even own any Bitcoin and stuff, which is fine. Like, I own very small amounts of Bitcoin. But, uh, yeah, I did buy a lot of Ethereum back in, like, early 2020, i've seen i've seen bitcoin kind of do its thing but less less than the bitcoin side more on the ethereum side i really like to just understand the tech and stuff and yeah i i, I am pretty bullish i think that maybe while take but yeah over the next one or two years it might be like really bad and bloody and like you can compare stuff from 2018 crash till now but yeah i do think that ethereum is still like really undervalued but i'm not i'm e-commerce is my gig it's just that's like a side thing
0: I love it. I did. I did so. I invested a little bit last night on some uh, crypto gaming because I saw a TikTok about how it's like the most undercapitalized space right now with like a trillion dollar market cap. And it's like it's got like a 333x over the next couple of years. This is not investment advice. No, investment advice. If yeah. you're looking, we're e we're, we're, we're commerce guys. Yeah. But there's definitely, yeah, protection. We're e commerce guys. Back to our stock e commerce question. Uh, which is if we were to give you a fifty thousand dollar grant for you to use in your marketing over the next, call it like two to three months, one to three months, how would you deploy that capital for the biggest impact?
1: Uh, so out of the fifty k, I would probably right away invest um, a good twenty k into inventory, and then with the rest of that thirty grand, we'd probably just speed up everything we're already doing. Um, with our team and stuff and you know maybe bring on one more person to help with onboarding creators and then like, to go down that, that loop um, and then you know spending a bit more on Facebook going up the ad account, but like slowly obviously, but it would help yeah, I would say inventory for 20k and remaining 30k. Some we just keep in cash because that's obviously uh, super king. and then the rest we kind of um, use just for growth and um, maybe bring on one more staff member and just yeah just making things that we're already doing just go a bit faster, a bit smoother.
0: Love it. Now, on this podcast, we like to uh, manifest. And uh, it's funny. I was just on my last TikTok episode with the Pilot House team. I was saying, you know what we know would be great for Pilot House to get as a new watch client. Uh, for for TikTok, I think watch client would work really well. And then all of a sudden, boom, someone like messages out of the blue. I was like, I was listening, I'm your watch client. Let's go. So right now you're you're sort of in the orbit of an exit. Like if there was one thing, like a listener in the D2c space who is listening right now, who would like be the most valuable like asset to Peachy shapewear if they were listening right now? Who would you like to call out? Hmm. A buyer? An investor? Probably not. No, I think I think
1: it's someone more on the operations side, especially with inventory and like logistics. That's kind of someone who I want to speak to. Like they can DM me on Twitter. Just kind of if someone has a lot of experience, like with um, you know in the in the past, we're working with like seven figure annual revenues and stuff, and forecasting inventory. And of course, even those forecasts will be wrong, but like they're probably better than mine. And so I I think that would be the main one, and then followed by investors, which. It's definitely helpful.
0: What's the name of that position? Is that, is that a director of operations? Is that inventory operations? Like what's the actual position that, that, would be, that you'd be hiring for with that?
1: Yeah, I'd be like the, I guess um, the name of it would be like head of inventory and logistics. Yeah.
0: Very cool. And then finally, are the Leafs going to make it out of the first round this year or are you too worried about their goaltending situation?
1: It's another hot take. Like I said about how talk over hype. I think that with the Leafs, um, if they play Boston the first round, they are going to get passed. If they play anyone else, they won't. I love it. That, that's my hot take for the Leafs. I think the goaltending issue is not that big of a deal. I think they're doing all right, and they'll be. Able, I think that they'll have momentum in the first round. And I think, yeah, if it's against Boston, they actually will get past. But if it's not, I think for some reason they're just gonna, you know, be that non playoff team they are sometimes and lose.
0: I love it. This is specifically for my editor, Declan, who is a full-out uh, Blackhawks fan. Oh, yeah? Uh, and so, so woe be to him because they're, they're in the middle of a, of a rebuild. So they'll be trading away a lot of their best assets this year. So sorry about that, Declan. But yeah, back to D2C because this is not a Fiat podcast or a Web3 podcast or even a hockey podcast. It is the D2C podcast. And I want to thank you for coming on it today.
1: Totally. Uh, glad to be here. I'd love to come back.
0: Yeah, let's stay in touch. And then, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look for you on Twitter. You got to uh, where should people be following you here? What's your handle? Uh, definitely on Twitter.
1: Yeah, my uh, handle is Corey, like C-O-R-E-Y-N-C-E-O. That's my handle.
0: Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumer, all one word, dot co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.